Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tim Gaither Podcast, episode 25. My guest today is my buddy Elliot Threet. Elliot has been doing comedy about 35 years now, and uh, and if uh, if comedy was uh, like the mafia, Elliot would be like one of the guys in Kansas City that we would have to ask before we whacked somebody. <laughs> We'd be like... We'd be like, this guy really sucks, Elliot, and we want to just fucking end it for him. And there we, you go. we would have to come to Elliot because, uh, yeah, man, you're right. you're one of the guys in Kansas City. Thirty five years is that is that correct yeah. in that number? And I and I would do you Tim just like Joe Pesci in the basement of Goodfellas. You would never see it coming. <laughs> yeah, you would. Oh my gosh! And Justin Leon would play the part of De Niro. You gotta be kidding. It'd be you and Joe Coronia and uh You gotta have Joe in there. Yeah. yeah. So you gotta have us in there, yeah. Like, yeah, and the great thing about being in comedy thirty five years is I get to see guys like you start from the beginning. Yeah. And uh, you know, you could tell who had the hustle and who didn't and who who stuck with it. And as a Kansas City guy looking on at LA and how hard it is, and I can't tell you how proud I am of you. To see your name on all these marques, your your name on the fame comedy store, which is something I only aspired to. I just will look at those names and and you know, when uh, long after you're gone and I'm gone, people are going to archive those names up on the comedy store wall, and you're going to be there. Yeah, you know, I, I I I don't think about that as much as I should. And uh, I was I was at the comedy store not too long ago, and and before the uh, show, the MC talks about how the paid regulars are going to be coming up at like 10.30 or whatever, and he says, he reiterates that only like 500 people since 1970 or whatever have been passed, and uh, that's not very many, you know? No, it isn't. It, it, isn't, it isn't at all, and I wish, I wish in some, in, in any other world besides entertainment that would mean something. Yeah. You know, I mean like a 3,000 hit club in baseball, or right. like a thousand yards for running back. Unfortunately, in comedy, unless you you point it out with your kids 20 years from now, I don't think a lot of folks care, to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but it's important to you. You got it. You're one of 500. God knows there's at least 5,000. So it's important to everybody in the business. And at the end of the day, it's the respect of your peers that, that makes you really, you know, happy with yourself or your accomplishments. I've never, I've still never gotten to meet Mitzi Shore. Have you ever met her? Uh, yes, I have. Actually, and your name is on the wall, and my name isn't. But uh, I have to say, this is going back in the time machine. She met me at the exact same time she met Roseanne Barr at the time. We were in the alley back there. Really? And a comedian named Michael Rappaport introduced us both to Missy. Huh. And uh, she'd come out from Denver. And this was back in the mythical days when a guy named Jim McCauley would come out from the Tonight Show and pass you and you'd be famous the next day. And, and guys like Louie Anderson and, and everything like that had uh, made it from that point. Yeah. The bad part about comedies nowadays for stand-up comics is that it's, it's so balkanized. I mean, you cannot get a collective audience. And as you know, unless you have a collective passionate audience, it makes it very hard to work in comedy clubs. You know, you have to have a back. And, you, mean by like, you, know, you mean like people that came specifically to see you? Oh, yeah, to come specifically to see you, you know what I mean? I mean, that's basically what it is, right? Yeah. People, I mean, and, and that's why you guys are, are hustlers, because you have to cultivate your own audience. Right. And, well, you and know, I, as long as you're in cultivate audience mode, you, can, you just need to go out there and do whatever you can. Yeah, and, and I tell you, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, but do you think audiences aren't quite as good as they used to be overall? Of course not. Yeah, I mean... Of course not. Audiences used to pay and appreciate it, but the, the mollization of, of comedy, I mean, if you don't evaluate it, right? If you don't if you don't pay 20 bucks, if you pay... It's just a prime example. You work Vegas a lot, right? Yeah. Does the steak at the buffet taste as good as steak at the restaurant that you pay for? Right. It doesn't taste good. The same can be applied for comedy. You know, if, if you're not paying, if you're just having to, to hustle your friends in there... You don't have any skin in the game, you know what I mean? You've, you've got the drinks, and they don't appreciate it. So basically, they have to inflate the price of the drinks because they're making less money in the door. That much more pressure you need to be funny, and it gives a greater sense of entitlement to the audience. Yeah. Wow. And um, that's 
the way it works. And you're in the clubs a lot more than I do. I don't know if you feel it that way, but, you know, that's why they, they say Friday and Saturday nights are always the best crowds because it's, the way, it's probably more or less the best crowds because those are the crowds where the most folks are paying. Yeah. Yeah, that that's true. It's crazy the the different dynamic it can be from a Wednesday or Thursday to uh, to a Friday or Saturday. But yeah, even these days the it, it's kind of a crapshoot on whether or not the audience is going to be any good. And and I never even thought about all the things that you just said. I mean, you broke it down from a, a business standpoint, and that it ultimately affects the show. And I never even thought about it that you know to that level. Well, there's so many things that affect the show. When I try to tell. Uh young communities, and you know this already, let's just say you have a heckler in front of the audience, right? Yeah. And he's just kind of a little side-talking, you know, it's like a bat or a bee kind of flying around your head, right? Yeah. Your first impulse as a beginning comedian is to address that person and talk to him. Mm-hmm. What you have to know as a comedian is that no one else can hear that person besides you, and you're looking down and you're taking your face out of the spotlight, and it seems like, you know what I mean? The headphones not loud if they're just irritating you. The more time you address it, and sometimes you just have to work through it and let the heckler just have his comments so the security can get him out of there, but don't address him. And then the worst thing a comedian can do, and I, I try to tell but they finally get the security to get him out, right? They're walking him out, right? Yeah. The smartest thing a comic can do is just go on with his act. What dumb comedians do is yeah, and get out, and you know, take your ugly white bitch with the bike with you. You know, the security people are trying to secure the situation, and then you're selling more wolf tickets as they're getting ready to leave, and then they come back, and you know, so it's just uh, proper comedy formatics, which is the most important thing, and, and comedy formatics can get you through a lot of the way. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I just did a show in Richmond. I think the club you're working in the future had the first couple crowds were really rough. But what you learn about really rough crowds, and you know this, Tim, if you acknowledge that a rough crowd is a rough crowd or they're getting under your skin, they win. Yeah. You can't ever let them know that. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't let them know that, right? Yeah. Because once you say, geez, you guys are rough, oh, God, that's your bomb, then they feel the fear. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you're in somebody's house and the German shepherd runs in, you can go, ah, you know what I mean? Or you can just... Yeah. Pet him. And the thing is, is that you can't show fears like this. You have to go through it, and you have to be confident. And you say to yourself, "I've done these jokes a thousand times before. I know it's not me." Yeah. Right. So I'm just going to keep to my format, keep to my timing, and eventually they'll come along. And if they don't, if you don't ever acknowledge, you know, almost like a president, if you don't acknowledge you, you never did anything wrong or didn't go well, maybe people all believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to be said for that, and, and it's true. Um, when you when you kind of just do what you do, even if they're not, even if it doesn't feel like they're on board, there will always be people that come up to you afterwards who did see what you do and the timing of it and all that stuff, and and they appreciate it. And, and I have to remember that. I've told this story before, but I did a show that I didn't even like one time, and an old man came up to me afterwards and told me I was the best stand-up he'd ever seen. And, and I hated this show. It was just a Sunday show. And ever since then, um, I, I've remembered that. that there's, there, there are people in the audience who, who are enjoying it and getting it and, uh, and, and all of that, even if you're not getting the last. But you're right. It's just like acknowledge- – Another prime example of that is uh, – I would like to tell the story. Uh, Bill Maher did one of the first young comedian specials, right? Okay. HBO and everything like that. And the crowd sucked. And the crowd sucked. And a lot of the comedians were acknowledging the crowd sucked and trying to make some rights back. Not Bill Marsh. He stuck to his act mm-hmm. and stuck to the timing as if he knew the last were going to be there because he knew that they were going to sweeten that all up in post-production. Yeah. And when it finally came out, he looked golden and everybody else looked bewildered. Right. And the other comedians were like, well, why is he stopping? You know, he would do his joke and stop. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because he was a step ahead of the game, and that's the way you have to be in town. Sometimes to be a step ahead of. Sometimes I'll tell the audience, I'll, I'll go. I'm pausing because normally people laugh there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you told the uh, you speak truth to power. I don't know if everybody in your podcast knows this, but Tim Tim Gaither has the best line for the comedians all auditioning for the. Uh, was it one night? No, it was the last, last comic standing. standing. Yeah. Last comic standing, and 
I don't want to paraphrase you, but uh, what you said was legend, so... I came up... set it up. You go up to the judges, and what was the first thing you say to those judges, Timmy? Um, I walked out there, and I figured they'd seen... <laughs> I figured they'd seen, you know, all this shit all day long. I figured nobody had really kind of fucked with them. So so I went out there, and the first thing I go, I said, uh, so how you guys doing? You, have, you having a good time crushing dreams? <laughs> what do they do to that? I mean, basically, you fell on the bayonet because they, you knew they weren't taking your ass after that, right? No, I, I, I thought that would get a laugh out of them, but it didn't. They had been there all day, and they were over it, and they were just like, fuck off, kid. Beat it. You know, like, do you have a joke? <laughs> yeah. And I went into my joke, and Kathleen Madigan just kind of looked at me like I was an asshole, and, and I think it was Alonzo Bolden, and he said something, and it was that little ant guy, and they were all they were all kind of dicks whoa, to me. Whoa, whoa, This was when comedians were hosting? Yeah. They were judging. Oh, that is... MC, huh? MC, yeah, yeah, MC. You know, she's just a kid out of out of St. Louis, and she could win a car yet. And uh, she's still very funny. And I tried to get her in the, the other clubs I got. She was determined, and everything like that. But you know, and it's hard. And that's one thing. You know, I always want to feel empathy for the other comedians, and maybe they saw a thousand comedians. But None of them are that famous that they weren't on the other side of the desk not that long ago. Matter of fact, the very show that put them on the other side of the desk was, you know, they said, so I don't care if it was, you know, yeah. they're paying you. You need to fake the funk. You know, Alonzo, Kathleen, and who else was behind the table there? Uh, it was that little ant guy, with that little, little uh, guy yeah. with the big head. Yeah. Um, you know, I I, I bet... And I bet. especially come for them because they knew as a comedian and it, it's not like they weren't out there auditioning the next day for some of their own shit you know yeah yeah and uh, you know they probably also knew who was already getting on the show because I think that shit's oh, all true. set up anyway because a lot of those things are fixed aren't they oh my gosh last comic standing I mean no offense to anybody who's been on it but they picked that show like they're picking donuts they're like we need two black guys we need two white guys we'll take an Asian we'll take Japanese that fat guy yeah <laughs> you know I mean that's how they do that show and, and I'm gonna tell you my last comic standing story I've gone up and auditioned for it in Minneapolis I thought I did it because I had uh, I think I auditioned for the year previous in New York. Anyway. I think that's where uh, I did the so, Crush and Dreams comment was in Minneapolis. Yeah, all right. Maybe you were there. That was the first time I got But were you on that show? No. Well, I don't know. I was one of the... I just stood in line like an asshole. Did they, did they have you... <laughs> they, well, what they have in me, you know, they have... Video, you know, they, whenever they go to the markets, they do all the, cold, the, the flash cuts from one time to another, saying one bit or another and everything like that, right? Yeah. So, I got in one bit, you know what I mean? I, they taped me saying one joke, right? Mm -hmm. They told me we really like this joke and everything like that, and we're going to use it. You know, the, the other people, we liked it, you know, and it's like I was all... And then they said, all right, they asked, are you a union? And I said, yep. And then they, still, they already had the footage, but they deleted all my words. You know what I mean? So it, it went from a paid bit to a silent bit, you know what I mean? Because yeah. if they don't use your words, they just use your your video, you know, and then them talk voice over talking, they don't have to pay you. Huh. And if you were not and if you weren't in the union they wouldn't have to pay you either. Yeah. But because I was in the union they would have to pay me, hence they cut out my words and everybody called me up and I said, Hey, were you on my when I came on last comic standing? We saw you. I said, yeah, you saw me. You didn't hear me. Yeah. What a crock of shit, man. So they just showed you, like, doing stand-up and... They showed they showed about 20 minutes, of, not 20 minutes, about 20 seconds, which is a long time in the TV time. You know, enough to get a bit of the pantomime of the bit, you know, me and my big eyes, expression, all animated and everything like that as they were talking over and scrolling. Because they would have had to pay me if, because I'm in SASAC and after at the time. As opposed to not just, you know, not paying the open micers or anybody who's not in the union. 
So those dicks couldn't uh, just pay you? They didn't. They don't have enough money at NBC or wherever that is. <laughs> I don't know what is it they pay. What is it? Eight hundred fifty dollars, I think, for spending. Uh, you know, I get up. You know, especially when the other bits are free. You know what I mean? When you're trying to make budget, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's you know exactly how it works. So you 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 were a, you were a comic during the the boom, right? The eighties. So what, oh my god, yes tell, it was. Tell me, I, and I don't think it would have done it. Tell me, it wasn't the boom. Tell me about the eighties. Well, first of all, first of all, all you needed was a, sh- a sheet of paper that said the comedy store and the improv. I say a tape, Tim. I said a sheet of paper, right? With a comedy, store, you know what I mean. A, uh, a, a bill or something like that, and you could go work all these other clubs. And they treated comics so much better. The ironic is I keep all my date books. It's kind of like my own little history, you know? Mm-hmm. And I look back in the 80s, and it paid $100 the feature, 200 bucks the headline for these one Yeah. And it has not changed. And back then, they treated, there were like these iconic chains like uh, Jokers in Oklahoma City that would fly you out as an opener and pay you 400 bucks a week, pay your air for, you know, 600 bucks a week. There was a club called The Last Laugh, and they were up in San Jose and Phoenix and uh, San Diego and Seattle and Portland. I used to do those all the time, and the clubs would be packed. They would do shows seven nights a week. You'd work Monday to Sunday. Man. And this is how long ago was the guy who owned the club, this back then before all the TSA stuff, Everybody who flew up there, his name was Jim Valentine. That's the guy who opened the last laugh. So everybody, because he was getting the points, right? So they thought he was flying <laughs> three times a week from different points and everything like that. But uh, those pups paid, I mean, a lot of money now. I mean, a lot of money then. It's not indifferent from the pro sports or anything. But, you know, he used to make 1800 to 2000 bucks a week. And you really didn't have a lot of name recognition but you know comedy people were packing the place and you know there's less venues of entertainment you know well, well you touched on this a little bit earlier and and that about giving it away and that's part of the fucking problem especially around LA it, it's comedy is every every flyer you see on social media it's always free 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 it's just devaluing what we do people don't realize like, like what is what a kind of a hard thing it is, and how uh, kind of a specialty thing it is. Like, very few people can actually do stand up, but nowadays, so many people do do it, who suck at it, but they're good at the social media part, which helps people go to their stupid bringer shows, and it all just it all just contributes that and you know the YouTube stars and all this shit that are selling out comedy clubs, and then people go and it's not comedy, and they're like, oh well, comedy's bullshit. It's like, no, you're just going to the wrong shows, <laughs> you know? No, it, 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 that, that is the case, and ironically, a lot of people, a lot of the funniest people got out, you know what I mean? I, I mean, not the funniest people, but a lot of people who were funnier than the people who are in there now got out because the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, you just stay in there, you know, there's only so much you can do, and, you know, when you talked about me coming on and doing comedy for 35 years, like I said, that's kind of a dubious honor when you tell people that because it's like you've been in the minor leagues forever it's like what was that guy in bull dorm crash whatever the heck his name was you know what i mean crash so, davis yeah I think, yeah uh, 35 years if you're in the military what i've been a general what i've been the you know admiral or whatever you know 35 years in comedy the thing about comedy is that there's no seniority and every day you know that you start at the beginning yeah. every day I mean, you've headlined some of the biggest clubs in the country again, and every day, the next day, the Sunday, Monday, you get back, you start from the beginning. My name's Tim. I work these places. Blah, blah, blah. There's no credibility. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. And it, it, it's hard that way. Yeah. It, it, and every... I understand the comedy club because they have to make money. They can't do it. They're making all their money off of uh, 24 hours a week. You know what I mean? Seven to midnight, Wednesday through Sunday. Yeah. And they pay for the place. And, you know, the improvs and all those stuff, they got great food and everything like that. Still, they're open four days a week. You know what I mean? Or whatever the heck it is. So Oh, and they're, they they're rents out. They miss a lot. Right? Yeah. Their rents outrageous. And they've got, you know, tons of employees and all that shit. I mean, 
I get it. it. It's they're they're not in a good position either. They've got to book. You know, unfortunately, they've got to hold their nose and book some of these fucking people. Of course they do. Of course they do. And you, we all know who their names are, but I mean, they just bring in people because the reality is, is that people like famous stuff in this Kardashian society. And and Kim Kardashian, or any of those people in those reality shows, claim they did comedy and they just bought a joke, but people would sell out more than the most seasoned comedian. I know. You know? I mean, Wendy Williams, is that the lady with the show? The, the black lady with the big boobs in the show, Wendy? She tried to do comedy, and it's just like, you know, you can't blame them. I mean, the money's there, so take it, right? Yeah. But, I just wish they would rent out a bookstore and have a fucking meet and greet somewhere instead of taking up our weeks. <laughs> yeah, you, you, the, the, first of all, they still do the meet and greet. It's after the show when they sell their CDs and pictures for 25 bucks a piece, right? Oh, yeah. So they still do that, you know, and that's, they make that extra money, but... A GM was paying me recently and telling me about some guy that, that, uh, that came in and he did literally seven minutes of comedy... Some guy that wears a, a grown man that wears a onesie, and af, and outside he does seven minutes, seven, like the number after six, and then he goes outside and does a meet and greet. And she said that room was just slam packed to the walls, and 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 I'm just like, it's just so. <laughs> You're like, oh, God damn it! But I think but the, how long did it last for, Tim? Sorry, my dog is. I mean, that the problem with that is that eventually people are going to, you know, I, I would think, and maybe I'm wrong because people seem to be getting dumber, so who knows, but I would think that people, would, if they pay 30 bucks to see somebody who's not really a stand-up and they suck, and then they look at the marquee and they go, well, why should I pay 17 to see Tim Gaither? He must really suck. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you're exactly right, but then again, from the comedy club, these comedy clubs are just like comics, paycheck to paycheck, and they got to stay in the court. Yeah. And there's a chance they can get this YouTuber out here to, to pay and, and pack the place, and they can pay their liquor sales tax the next day. They'll take that and just leave the fight another day with another comedian, you know? Yeah. And, you know, now that they hedge their bets, it's called the split week, right? Yeah. It's where we have, uh, we have a famous person come on off night, and Tim, you just dig the sloppy seconds or whatever's left of the week, right? Yeah. So the headliner would only work on the Wednesday and Friday. You'd be working on Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, right? Yeah. You're just filling in around them. And that's what they do. They're just trying to hedge their bets, you know? But the thing is, it's like a roller coaster. They have a super famous person, and they don't. But places like Kansas City, where they just have kind of. You know, there are a lot, a lot of nice guys here. They're maybe not the funniest guys in the world. You know what I mean? And well, that's another problem, too, is a lot of clubs are figuring out that they don't need to book middle acts. They don't need to book out-of-town middle acts and put them up anywhere. They can have three or four guys do ten minutes in front of the headliner. 
And a lot yeah, of clubs. Oh, right? Exactly, and then they don't have to pay them shit. And so it's all just. But it, here's the worst part about that. You know what I mean? As you know, these guys aren't helping matters. They're digging the hole for me to get out of. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So now I have to start three feet underground and burn a lot of my good material just to get up back to where it should have been when I first walked up on stage. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that happens all the time. You think you're saving money by having a bunch of other... And the thing a lot of these people, they throw up, they have no idea or no similarity to the person who happens to be headlining, right? So yeah. it could be a... Uh, Dude, I just... be a, a black act and they have this, you know, guy doing a bunch of uh, Eddie Vedder references or whatever, or vice versa, you know what I mean? Um, it's just rough sometimes. I just did a club where they, I mean, they had like four or five people in front of me, and each one of them were different. One guy went up and did like 20 of crowd work in between. I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, you know? Um, and, and, you're, why, and then why, why they do it, then, you know, the crowd work and all that stuff, it's just, you know, I mean, you got to pick your spots, but you can be really good. But even the guys who... I don't know the guys who have made, you know, I don't know how they've done it. I mean, when I hear that Hannibal Burris started counting in 2009, it's like, oh my God, well, how did he cut through all this stuff, you know? Or, or Donald Glover, all these other people, what did they do? I think, you know, what they did is they stayed in New York. I think the common denominator is that I don't hear a lot of people making it out of LA, at least not, you know, not like I used to. But the thing about LA is, is that L.A. is a place where you do all these sets and they don't pay you because yeah. it's L.A., right? And everybody wants to be there. I think New York is a little bit different in the fact that, yes, they don't pay you in New York, but that doesn't extend to all the other cities that are relatively close, right? It doesn't extend to Philadelphia or... Yeah, Burgess, uh, Burgess told me you could stay in the city and make, you know, once you got established and you could make, like, you know, 500000 bucks on the weekend just doing so many yeah. different spots. And you might do 20 freaking sets that, that month, that night. But uh, anyway, um, so we can both agree that the business is shitty. <laughs> you know, but I mean, what are you, you going to do? Because the point is you have to have a positive outlook and you say, you're going to say it's shitty, but you're shitty, you're part of the people who say it's shitty who are on the wall of comedy store. Yeah. Of a bazillion people. Right? Yeah, and I haven't had a day job in so long that you know, I might say it's shitty, but I guarantee if I tried to go out into the get a job and all that stuff, I'd be like, man, comedy is awesome. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. I never, I always looked at it, somebody said it like this, uh, you know, I never really, I, I kind of work for free. I want to get paid for the travel. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the thing is, you, you want to get paid for the show, but you work for free. When we did a benefit for our friend Jennifer, you know, we worked for free. It was right up the street, at least it was for me at the time. But if they, she said she's in Admiral, Texas, like, uh, you know, I like to come out there and do it for me, but I don't have a transport on the Star Trek, so I'm going to have to get in the car and stop by Casey's and fill up the tank and buy some Mountain Dew and this, that, and the other thing. And, and that costs money, you know? Right. And, uh, Thing about comedy in, in your place is that how do you do it? I mean, you can be doing everything right and it doesn't work. And then the other thing, if you do everything right, if you're the fastest sprinter, you get the gold medal, right? Yeah. Fastest sprinter, you get the gold medal. You're the best football player, you can throw it 100 yards, your first round draft pick. That has no bearing in show business whatsoever, does it? No. It sure doesn't. You know. It's getting, uh, you know. But again, you know, I. I when I'm up there and I look out at the crowd and it's going well, um, that's that's why I do it, you know. And all that other shit you kind of forget about when when you're in the moment of doing it. It's still, you know, and I still learn all the time, you know, like how, where to pause and and just little things, you know. I still learn. This weekend I had a I had a heckler that man, if I would have just gone left, I probably could have avoided the whole thing. Like I've got it on tape and it, it or on uh, audio and and it got ugly. Like, I mean, they really, like, there's this lady up front, and she just kept, like, I had told her to, I you know, it kind of zinged her a little bit and basically told her to shut up. Well, that just made her want to talk more. And she was doing that thing where she would literally just speak after every every pause that I would, even the slightest pause, you know. And uh, and I went, I kind of went off on her. And, and you need those 
pause yeah. So after every pause, if any pause I would have, she would she would ruin it. She she would just say something, and and I lost it on her too much, and I ended up kicking him out, and uh, and it went fine. I recovered. I just went right back into my shit, like you were talking about. But but I could have I could have handled it differently, especially now that I listen to it on tape, and I'm like, ah, oh, well, you never stop learning. You know, it's like Jason Dixon told me. He goes. He goes, uh, you know, you do this for a while and you think, well, I might not kill every time, but I'm not going to eat it anymore. And as soon as you think, as soon as you have that thought, as soon as you have that thought, you are about to eat shit. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I don't want to do I mean, we say it's a shit business and, and all that other kind of stuff. But the thing is, is that what you learn in stand-up comedy translates into every, anything else you may ultimately end up doing. You yeah. know what I mean? It's not a fake thing, you know? I mean, I kind of, as you know, kind of skedaddle from county into business, and I can't tell you how much of an asset it was when I was making a presentation knowing that I knew how to read a room better than anyone. Yeah. I didn't need the facts. I know how to read the room. I know how to read people, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? I know how to make eye contact and talk and pause and hold, hold attention. You yeah. know what I mean? And these other people, they can... You can teach it and learn it, but when you've been on the battlefield of stand-up comedy for 30 years, you know it instinctively. And I, you know, I've lucked out in business, and I, I can tell you everything. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a banker at the other side of a table, you're trying to get some money or a job, if you can dig down to them. And here's how you know you're winning in that, because you're, you're comic and you work the crowd. When you talk to an important person, and you talk to them for about 10 or 15 minutes, and they say, oh my God, I've been talking about myself. For 15 minutes. I don't know anything about you. It's like, you won. Yeah. You've got them so loose, they've already they've already showed you all their cards and everything like that. And they know very little about you, right? Yeah. And then they go back and they Google you and they find out you're a comedian. They become enamored. You come back again and you close the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's 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 kind of like how wrestling was for me when I... When I uh, started doing comedy, I realized how similar it was, like how I felt before a wrestling match was very similar to how I felt before doing stand-up, and it, it's still the same way. I still calm myself... You, know, anyway, you win the match before you ever step in the ring, right? Yeah, yeah, and I still calm myself down the same way, I still breathe the same way, you know, like I, I had this little ritual I would how do... How come you and Greg won on, on tour together? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He was uh, he was a hell of a wrestler, Craig Warren. He was a Division One All American. I think I told you. Well, you were a hell of a wrestler too. I, I, I was, but Greg was better than me. I, I I'm okay with saying that. Uh, but I don't, but he, in this world of packaging, why aren't two wrestlers working together? Uh, I don't know, man. I don't. Let me ask you this, Mister Gator: If there were two astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> Rocket scientists was like, "Hey, maybe we can get these guys to the same show." Well, <laughs> <laughs> I got this astronaut working with three former servers and an actor, and I got this other astronaut working with a juggler. Maybe I should get the astronauts together. You know, I was, I was uh, just thinking about Justin and I were just talking about maybe trying to package ourselves and and go on the road together because I don't, you know, I have fun doing the shows and all that stuff, but. You know, it'd just be nice to spend some time with, with a friend while you're doing it. You know, sometimes you like the that's comic. The only way to, that's the only way to do it, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes you like the comic you're working with, and then sometimes you don't, you, even if you like them okay, you don't click enough to hang out, so you just buy yourself all the time. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's very transactional. You know, hey, good show, shake hands, good show, catch up with you, see you, holla, you know what I mean, and you take off, you know? Yeah. And, um... And then that's a give and take thing, but you're right. It's working with people you know, and and, and you know that's another thing. It's like it used to be. We have things called comedy condos, and they were some of them were very nice. You, you ever stayed in a comedy condo? Sure. And so it was a little bit differently. You can't be as transactional before. You know, you would just you know see the headliner right before the show. He showed right before. You know, if you're the feature act and you got AMC, you're not seeing him close. Hell, you don't know what he get. I'll see you close on Friday night first show. Other than that, I ain't seeing it, right? Right. But when they stay at a hotel, when they stay at a condo, they kind of get to know each other. And back then it was, it was, 
everybody. The only difference was is that, uh, you know, Steve Harvey or Roseanne had the bedroom, you know, the main bedroom, you know, the bathroom. Yeah. Other comics had the two bedrooms and they had to share a bath. But we're all in there and we all went to movies together and, and everything like that. And that's how a lot of the relationships were formed. And I don't know how you, you do it now, you know. Yeah, well, there's still a few few clubs that do that. Um, and again, it's just... You know, well, another thing, and the reason Midwest comics, I mean, how did I get to know Tim Gaither? It was, it was writing, or you ride together, right? Yeah. So you can't play out the snob thing if you're riding to Parsons, Kansas, right? Or, or Topeka or Des Moines, and you're sitting in the car for three hours. You get to know people, right? Yeah. Did, did you... Uh, this is kind of a different topic, but do you remember... Um, do you remember when I first met you? I'd been doing comedy six months, and it was at Chums, and you saw me and liked me, and I started headlining one-nighters within six months of starting comedy because you hooked me up with Doug and Dana McCraw, and I had like 20 minutes of material, but I would basically just get drunk and stand up there for 50 minutes, but that's how I learned how to headline, and I wrote so much well, stuff it, doing it, that. It is stage presence. You know, the stage presence and sweater, and if people think headlining is just great material, you know what I mean, then then they haven't seen uh, Jim Carrey or Louis C.K. or anything like that because it's, again, more like the wrestling thing. That's just part of it. You know, Sinbad, who started out in Kansas City with us, I mean, you try to recreate his jokes. You know, you try to, you go out and do it, you'll get no laughs. It's like a, it's like a, a glove that only, like OJ, it's a glove that only fits it's his hand, yeah. you know, and it's just Steady's presence, and, and he could be funny reading names out of the phone book, and, and the fact that you jived with the crowd so much, you know what I mean, and they, they, they never shook you, and the thing is, is that, uh, again, back to, you know, you're getting drunk and having fun, and, uh, and making contact, and people could relate to you, you know, and then Chumps was that weird crowd where, where people could relate to you. Dude, I and love Chumps. Is that you kind of, you are your act, which is the easiest thing to do in the world, isn't it? I mean, it's the easiest thing to do. And the fact that you are your act, so you're just an extension of yourself, you know, however many years later, you know? So you don't have to do all that other kind of crap that the other comics have to do. You don't have to smash a watermelon, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it's still, like I said, it's it's still, uh, it's always a learning process, you know? Um, I don't know. I learn all the time. Did you... I wanted to ask you this. Um, did you know Dick Gregory? Uh, Dick Gregory, yes, I did. Yeah? Do you have any Dick Gregory stories? Uh, I just shook his hand. I mean, it's not like I know my dad knew him very well. Yeah, your dad, you know? your dad, tell us about your dad, because you, Martin Luther King has had dinner at your house. That's Is that right? Yes, he is. About two or three days before he was assassinated. Holy shit, are you kidding me? I was a young person. Yeah, my dad was a... Uh, you know, there's streets named after him back here in Kansas City and everything like that. And, and, uh, and, you know, I'm really fortunate in the fact that my dad, and this is why I give my kids a lot of leeway, my dad, you know, college and everything was very important. He was one of the first black graduates of the Wharton School of Business up at the University of Pennsylvania, where my nephew actually attends. And uh, so, you know, you see all these stories, first college graduate in the family, and it's probably a statement everywhere, and it's maybe very acute, at least in my awareness growing up in a minority family, everybody went to the college. So, uh, you know, off went my uh, sister to Howard, off went my brother to Harvard, off went my brother to Hopkins. And I said, hey, I want to do comedy. You know what I mean? And he could have just taken a hard line and everything like that, but he says, you know what? I'm going to consider your living out in LA like college. Yeah. And make your car payment. And part of your rent payment, it's just like college. So you're just going to just try to go along and do it. So, you know, I don't have a degree or anything like that. But, uh, you know, he gave me a lot of latitude to speak. And matter of fact, he, I wanted to become a comedian because he spoke at my high school. And the worst thing in the world, the most inferior world, is your parents coming to school, right? Yeah. I don't care if your dad's Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. He's like, oh, God, they're coming to see, you know what I mean? Especially exaggerated. So my dad was speaking in the auditorium. There could be nothing worse. And teacher made us all kind of sit in the auditorium, and I kind of positioned in the back like the fire exit, like when this shit goes down, I want to be out all out by the bus before anybody sees anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. Got to go to point me out. And to make matters worse, he had had an eye patch. He had eye surgery. So now my dad's going up in front of the school and he's got a fucking eye patch on his eye. <laughs> <laughs> so this, 
he went out and made a couple jokes about it. I bet you'd never see a black pirate, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, my God. My dad's killing. You know yeah. what I mean? He has all these stories, you know? So I, you know, swung at the room. So at the end of his little speech, I'd been at the back of the room, and then I was kind of easing up. And he did think about me. He's like, I want to just stand up and say, hey, that's my dad. And, you know, it's like you told a bunch of jokes. He told a bunch of jokes to broke his eye, break the ice. But, you know, speaking is speaking. And holding attention is holding attention. If you want to do it dramatically or humorously, it's pretty much the same playbook, right? Okay. So, you know, it's, one's making Chinese food, one's making barbecue. You still got to be good. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Do, do you remember meeting Martin Luther King? You know what I remember? That's a very good question. I'm not that old. I was about, God, four years old at the time. And what I remember is uh, is him coming to, a lot of people came to my house. And to be honest with you, I couldn't discern uh, him from any other black guy that was around the time. And uh, got assassinated and... Uh, then they tried to blow up our house, and uh, and that's why he ended up in Kansas City because we were living in uh, Newark at the time, and and the people had uh, put a bunch of bombs and everything in our window well of our house when they were riding, and the National Guard came and got us, and then my dad says, "I'm out," kind of like Kramer, and that's how we end up moving to Kansas City because uh, it didn't come to find out, you know, when everything kind of catches up with the internet, and I type in my dad's name in Newark. Right, I see him with you know Langston Hughes and and Jackie Robinson and and uh, you know and, and then you know wow. rioting and all these other pictures and it's like oh my god, you know it's kind of neat there to to see because a lot of that stuff I would have never known about but you know when the internet came out they started archiving all this stuff stuff I would only been able to find in the New York City Library now is on online you know it is so weird how how things work out I mean if if. Martin Luther King hadn't had dinner at your house. You might, you guys may not have moved. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't have met you. There's so many turns of serendipity. If you if you hadn't gone to Chum's Pizza, right? Yeah. You hadn't gone to Parsons County. You think about all the serendipity, and then you think about you know how many times if you had glad you bought that Mountain Dew, or else you'd have been in a car accident the last time you were driving from Phoenix to LA or whatever. So yeah. Definitely made it. It's definitely made it I harder. Mean, if everybody, if everybody wanted to plump, be a plumber and and plunge the shit out of your toilet for free, how much would plumbers make? Will Rotor Rooter be out of business? So that's kind of the kind of paradigm we have to live with. Dude, they just came out and it cost us twelve thousand dollars to fix uh, the plumbing, and you know, in the long run, it's going to be oh good. My God. In the long run, it's going to be good because we've got a fifty-year uh, warranty on the plumbing and all that. But twelve grand, and it took the guy like three hours. I was like, shit, man, I'm in the what wrong business. Why? Well, weren't there any fleet plumbers in the sign-up place? You could have thrown up a couple other plumbers and then had the headliner plumber come in <laughs> and finish it up. <laughs> like, the first couple plumbers undo the, the sink and everything like that, then bring in the headliner plumber. That's the one you really paid, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, man, uh, speaking of, uh, um, you know, influential civil rights leaders and all that stuff. What do you think about the shit that just happened in Virginia? Do you think there's any way that they, that stuff like that is ever orchestrated these days? Of course it is. And, you know, and here's the thing that, I mean, it, it is. And the, and the thing was so funny is that, they, you know, because they had the torches, they outed some people, right? Right. You know, they outed this one guy, uh, who wanted a white state and, you know, and, and was all for white supremacy. And he had come down from Fargo, North Dakota. Okay. Okay, he's from Fargo. He was already in a white state, right? Yeah. yeah. All he had to do was stay, stay his ass put. He would have never <laughs> run into any black folks. He doesn't hit a black folk until he comes down I-29 and hits Omaha, for God's sake, right? <laughs> yeah, all he had to do was stay in, in, in fucking Fargo and he would have been fine. You know, <laughs> it is hard to find black folks in the northern. You know, I mean, you know, even you're playing for the Utah Jazz, or you know, I mean, it's just you know they're athletes or or whatever. It's just hard to. 
and then they come down and do that, and it's just a yeah ritual hate in their and their lemmings, and you know they they think it's other people that are taking stuff away from them, and it's the classic distraction. Look this way, look that way, and they kind of take it all from you, you know. And it happens, it happens all the time. And the only thing I the only pleasure I get out of this crazy thing is the Schadenfreude, the Schadenfreude of these. Uh, Hispanic people saying, "Well, I didn't. T- I didn't think they would deport my dad. He was one of the good. No, they don't make the distinction, right? I didn't think Caitlyn Jenner. I didn't think it was about me. You know what I mean? There's all the there's a whole thing about World War Two. You know, if you stand for no, if you stand for no one, when they come for you, there's nobody to stand for you, right? Yeah. And that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. So you have to stand together. And all these other people stood for no one but themselves. But then when it came rights when they came knocking on the door of, of some different American dreamers' parents, you know what I mean, or, or you know, having those having black, having two people who are Jewish have to sit behind Donald Trump while he defends Nazis. I mean, like, how bad do you need the job, Steve Mnuchin and, and Gary Gill? How bad do you need the job not to just walk out, you yeah. know? And apparently they need the job. You know, there's not a lot of profiles and courage over on that side of the political wild. Yeah. That's the way I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's it's been it's been disheartening to you know, I've tried to stay off of uh Facebook too much because people are just so um you know, they argue about stuff, and a lot of people are... so hatred, yeah. And the thing is, in comedy, you have to stay away from me, because, like, the moment I say where I'm at, politically, I got to... Uh, You've divided the room. I have, I've, div- I've divided the room, you know what I mean? So I just try to stay away from it, you know? I've divided the, the room, and... And you kind of learn, and you know one of your best friends is Justin Leon, right? Yeah. Justin and I spent our lives being the only black people, not only in the room, but in 80% of the cities we perform at. Yeah. Our lives. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my, you know, and I think if the shoe was on the other, you know, foot, you see that a little bit. It's not just in the club, but, uh, you know, I'm a white comic and you walk out of the club and uh, I was working on a chocolate party, but now everything's back to normal. No. I'm the only black guy in the club, I'm the only black guy in the mall, I'm the only black guy in Denny's, I'm all, you know what I mean? And this was for years, and it still is that way to a large degree, so you kind of learn to kind of temper and kind of, you know, kind of play your hand a little bit differently, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and when you're when you're not, um, you know, when it's not in your heart to be, you know, racist or whatever, I, I think sometimes people have a hard time believing that it's in other people's hearts, or that, 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 they, that they can be like that. Um other than they can believe it and be that vicious. You know, they said that the right-wingers called, uh, they mean the supremacists, or then they said that fat slut had it coming, is what they said about uh, Heather Heyer, the lady who got run over, you know what I mean? And they're animals anyway, you know, to say that. just And I never felt that way, you know what I mean? I, I try not to send any hatred around those other people that way you know i'm not happy when any of that stuff happens to folks you know yeah and uh i can tell you one thing had it been a bunch of muslims doing that or running the car it would have been a whole different thing you know but i don't know how this shakes out you know i, I really don't know how it shakes out everybody's kind of kind of worried and everything like that i mean there's been a big thing in phoenix tonight if he he parked joe arpaio i mean that's just kind of a it's just dividing, you know, and you, you can't be present and just play to your base. You have to be present to everybody. And, you know, they all hated Obama, but, you know, you're good at Obama. He went right to the heart of the beast, you know what I mean? He addressed them and treated them like respect. And they would yell, you lie. And, you know, he'd go. And you notice that, that Trump only goes to places where he, he uh, people voted for him. But, you know, Obama was visiting all the states, you know what I mean? And that's just the way it goes, I guess. Yeah. You know what they say? You know, I, I take some solace. There's a guy named John Tupel saying, and he talked about pulling out of the climate accords and everything like that. And he said the good thing about that is is that we pulled out of the Paris climate accords, and now now that we're not here and have to drag along all our, our knuckle draggers, they made it even stronger. And when we get back in it, because we are going to get back in it, it's going to be even tighter. So, I mean, in a positive way, it's like we had to hell back, so now they're going to make it stricter and stricter, and in four years or eight years, when we get back in it, we're going to have to join the club where they're at now and not have to carry all these other obligations that made it weaker in the first place to get everybody together. Yeah. Boy, we just turned political really quick, didn't we? (laughs) 
Yeah, you're way smarter about that shit than I am. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, listen, really. I'm gonna listen to this later and, and learn some stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've always been smarter than me. Um, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not very smart. I'm not very smart. Like I said, and you know, I, I got lucky. And I got in the business because I said, you know, I don't mind not being famous. I just want to work for myself. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, you can't always get famous, but, you know, being in control of your own time is the most valuable thing in the world, right? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I honestly, you know, if I could just continue to make a good living without getting famous, I, you know, I, I've told people before, but Brian Regan, to me, has the ultimate career. Because the guy's a millionaire, and he's a huge draw, and he can walk down the street, and very few people know who he is or bother him at all. Oh, like Harold Ramisham. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it is. And he, yeah, he has audience, and he's extremely talented. Yeah. And maybe the same could be said for Jim Gaffigan and these other guys, you know. And But, you know, you have to get famous someplace. But Brian Regan isn't on TV near as much as his his his... his his app, you know what I mean, his, his stage grid is. I mean, people go out to see him, and he's not a flash in the pan, right? You know, he still fills up arenas all the time. What is Dane Cook doing right now, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't seen him. <laughs> I haven't seen him for a while, but... Um, <clears throat> well, Elliot, I won't take up your whole day, but uh, um, is there anything you want to... Is there anything you want to plug or anything? Well, yeah, I, I do want to... Oh, my God, I, I do have to plug something. I just did a... Uh, I did another comedy CD. Awesome. It's not CD format, but it's uh, it's available online. You can buy it on Amazon or, or Google Play or, or CD Baby. It's called uh, Live at the Comic Strip, El Paso Comic Strip. So you can go out and buy it. And my other CD uh, from 2002, I decided to put up, and you can buy little segments of that anyway. But who buys them right now? Because I, I checked, and they're all on YouTube for free. So you're right. It's, <laughs> appreciate you coming on and uh, like I said you you know you've already been doing comedy for close to 20 years when I started and because because you started so young too um, because you're not that much older than me you're not you're really not and uh, but you've been doing comedy I'm old man well that's not that old these days you're still a fine piece of ass Elliot oh I appreciate it you as well <laughs> and uh, and you're one of the funniest guys ever and and uh, well, thank you you're very sweet to say that no, it's true, man. You're funny and clean. Can, and, I, can uh, I say something about you, by the way, before we get off? Sure, man. I was coming out to L.A., and last time when you tell a comic to pay L.A., they just pay lip service trying to get a set for you. But you showed your Midwestern bona fides because you were busting your ass to get me a set, something I never expected, but I sincerely appreciate it. Oh, well, shit, man. I'm, I'm sorry it didn't work out. <laughs> But, but uh, thank you for having me on, my brother. You bet, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Elliot. All right. Take bye care. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That was my friend, Elliot Three. Uh, sorry that you had to listen to my dog have a little conniption fit there during the middle of it. She's not a big fan of the mailman. Are you Tulsa Sue? No. She does not like the mailman. Um, I'm going to have the prank calls back on here soon. I've had a few people tell me they really enjoy those and they miss them, and... Uh, it's been a little more difficult for me because I haven't been around John. He's been out of town for a couple months, and 
I've been on the road a lot and all that too, so uh, prank calls aren't as easy as they used to be. Everybody has freaking caller ID and and all that stuff, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, what happened in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, and uh, don't believe everything you see on TV. Not saying that certain things didn't happen because I know they did, but uh, just remember that they are all trying that they're trying to divide us and that uh, the media is run by corporations and corporations run the government and the media tells or the government tells the media what to say dependent on what corporations want them to say that's why there's certain things you'll never hear them talk about and uh, there's money and division and keeping us apart and all that shit so uh, try to be nice to each other and check out timgathercomedy.com I've added some more tour dates I'm getting ready to uh, uh, put those on my website just added the uh, Dayton Oklahoma City and Richmond Virginia and somewhere else I'm doing a Springfield reggae festival in Springfield Missouri that's gonna be fun coming up beginning of August excuse me October October 6th um, but all those dates will be on timgathercomedy.com check out makingithappen.com M-A-C-A-N, Little Bo Macon. And my guest today was Elliot Threat. His last name is spelled T-H-R-E-A-T-T, -T, Elliot Threat. And uh, check out his comedy. He's very, very funny, very clean. You could uh, listen to it with your grandmother, and uh, you'll both laugh just as hard. And uh, I think that's pretty much it. You got anything to say, Tulsa? Nah, she's not stupid. She knows that was me. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Tim Gaither Podcast. Uh, if you think about it and you listen to this on iTunes or anything like that and want to give us a positive rating, uh, all that shit helps. So check that out, and uh, God bless all of you. Bye-bye. Oh